All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. So great to see you this morning. How's everybody doing on this wonderful, beautiful morning? Southern California is back. Yes? All right. We're excited about that. We survived the, our version of the polar vortex. And we are on with life. Um, my name is Josh Harrison. I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, apologies on behalf of my family. They're not uh, here this morning. We had uh, my son. I have a four-year-old son named Elijah who decided that he was going to have a fever last night of 105, which was, yeah, yeah, just kind of out of nowhere. So we ended up taking him to the ER. He was there until 3 in the morning, and then the family didn't quite make it. Um, he's doing great, though. I have no idea what's, what's, what's going on, some sort of a flu something. So anyway... Um, three in the morning is not as much fun as it used to be, by the way, if you're wondering. <laughs> it, it, it felt like when I was in college that three in the morning was sort of the cutoff. That if you went to bed before three, you were like, oh yeah, I think it was a reasonable night's sleep. And then last night at three in the morning, I was just thinking, I'm going to die. <laughs> I just feel like I might just die. And that's when it hit me that I'm officially old. Um, so grateful to be with you guys this morning. Um, yeah, I love, I love this church. I love uh, Pastor Wayman and the opportunity to be in Pastor Wayman. You like that, Eric? You like that? I know. Just figure I'd throw that out there. Um, but yeah, I love, I love the opportunity to be a part of, of this community in a variety of ways. Um, have been friends over the years. I've, I've been the beneficiary of many elbows from, from Eric on the, the basketball court. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I do. I do reciprocate. Absolutely. When you get to be my age, you don't, you don't move your feet anymore. You just move your elbows. That's how you play basketball. So anyway, um, all right, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be in your house, um, which is to say not in this building, but in your house, your community of faith. Um, Holy Spirit, would you lead our conversations, point all of us to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We want to hear from you. We want nothing less than everything you have for us. In your name. Amen. So it was uh, kind of middle of the 4th century. A guy named Alexander, young guy. Uh, 4th century BC, that is. Um, decided to conquer the known world and then some. So Alexander, um, young Greek uh, king who uh, took the Greek empire and expanded it beyond uh, the, the size and scope of any empire previously in the history of the world. It stretched from, from Greece uh, all the way down south into Egypt and all the way um, east into India, which was uh, unthinkable. The, you know, in our day and age, that's a couple of flights. In his day and age, that was quite an accomplishment, quite a feat, uh, to really unite that entire empire under one banner. When he did so, he changed the world um, from then on out uh, by infusing Greek language, Greek thought, Greek um, art and science into pretty much everything. Um, and we today are still in many ways students of, of Alexander. That's something I know that, that Eric convincingly uh, last weekend argued for this, this idea that our ways of thinking about the world have been influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek thought. Um, in particular, Greek philosophy, we are still to this day talking about, and, and right, rightfully so, talking about philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, men of profound intellect and conviction who changed the way that many, many around the world think of reality. Um, and Greek thought has come to influence Western culture today, specifically in the ways we think about life and the world that we walk through. One way in particular is the way we think about the division between spirituality and physicality. 
We often talk, um, not just outside the church, but inside the church as well, about the spiritual world and the physical world. This is called Platonic dualism, right? This guy named Plato just said that there are two realms, essentially. There's the material world that we all see on a, on a regular basis, and there's a spiritual world that the material world is a reflection of, right? A dim and imperfect reflection of. And the goal as human beings is to move from the material world into the spiritual world through acts of virtue, through, through acts of, of, of intellect and, and, and immersing ourselves in philosophy, that we can somehow detach ourselves from this um, kind of fuzzy quasi-reality that we live in and move into the higher realm of actual reality. That doesn't sound too far from what I hear preached in many churches often. That there's a physical world and there's a spiritual world. And the way that we are supposed to engage is by detaching ourselves from the things of this world and moving into then this kind of spiritual realm. And we'll often quote, and I think maybe misquote, Paul who talks about things like the flesh. And will say that anything material, anything physical is bad and needs to be resisted. And the goal then is to be more spiritual in our mindset and in our thinking. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding. I think it's informed by Plato and not by Jesus. See, Alexander is an amazing character, um, but we as Christians are not students of Alexander. We're disciples of Jesus, and Jesus thinks about the world differently. Jesus isn't a Westerner. He, was, he grew up in a world that was influenced by Alexander, but he thought about things in a very Eastern way, and I want to talk about what that looks like um, via a guy named Paul. Before I do, speaking of Alexander... Let's get everybody warmed up with a joke, right? Anybody know what Alexander the Great and John the Baptist have in common? Same middle name. Eric's writing that one down. He's going to use that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Anyway, all right, here we go. Um, So... We have this, this philosophy, this Platonic dualism that, that informs the way we think about life. Matter, bad. Spirit, good. Move from the bad to the good by being more spiritually minded, by being less earthly minded, right? These, I mean, these are things that, that we talk about that even make, make their way into the songs that we sing in church sometimes. And again, I think they're, it's they're using language out of the Bible, misunderstanding the fundamental worldview that's here as uh, kind of a, an answer to that because... The Apostle Paul also grew up in this Greek world. He spoke Greek. He was versed in Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. He knew this stuff intimately. He writes sort of a different worldview, a Christ-informed, a Jesus-following worldview in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. We're going to read from uh, verse 23 to verse 33. There's going to be one verse in here we're going to camp out on, um, but I want to read the whole thing for context. So, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. This is Paul's answer. This is his response to what Christian living looks like as opposed to this Platonic dualism. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of something I thank God for? So, and here's our verse. Whether you eat or drink, 
or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul's answer, if Greek thought is that we move from one plane of existence to a higher plane of existence, and that's how we're supposed to live our lives, that's fundamentally the meaning of life. Paul's answer is no, no, no. The meaning of life is this. You live in every way for the glory of God. Okay, I want to talk about uh, the difference between those two today, and I want, to, I want to unpack that idea. What does it mean to do everything, whether eating or drinking or anything else, to the glory of God? And I want to suggest that it means three things. If you have uh, notes in your bulletin, we're going to go through those. Um, I'm going to change some of the titles, though, because a sermon is a work in progress, right? The, the Spirit informs the work, and sometimes He speaks after you submit your sermon notes, okay? So <laughs> the main content is going to change, uh, is going to stay the same. But I might change a little bit of the content along the way. So what does it mean then to live to the glory of God? Let's talk about the context of this passage first. You might be saying, uh, all right, I I get that verse, but but what's all this stuff about meat sold in a market? And and how does that have anything to do with Plato and Aristotle and and, and Alexander? Um, Here's the deal. The context of this passage is Corinth. So Corinth is a city um, where Paul had planted a church and it was a a very pagan city, meaning um, idolatry was the dominant religion. So you have all sorts, and I I mean that like literally, like there were actual idols that were set up all over the place in the town, in people's homes, and and part of the religious practice practice was to was to buy meat, to buy food, and sacrifice it to the idols. Um, Now, of course, the idols never ate the meat. Okay, so it it would just sort of sit there for a while, and then, being pragmatists, the uh, Corinthians wouldn't want, want this to go to waste, so they would then take it, take it back, sell it in the markets, and and off you go. Um, and this wasn't a problem for anybody because it was a pagan city and that's just what you did. But then Paul comes in and introduces Jesus and he says, no, look, Jesus is not one God among many. There is one true God and Jesus is the visible image of that God and he changes everything. He demands allegiance and that you forsake these other gods. So it's not that you get to add Jesus into this kind of pantheon. It's that you have a whole new way of thinking about life. And these Corinthian believers, they took this seriously, and they forsook the other gods. They, 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 they cleaned them out of their homes. They, they stopped participating in the temple worship. I mean, Jesus fundamentally changed their lives, which is what he has come to do, incidentally. He fundamentally changed the way they thought about life. But here's what he didn't do. He didn't take them out of Corinth. Does that ever bug anybody? That when Jesus saves you, he, he like doesn't take you out of your context? <laughs> I mean, that would be nice, right? If you just sort of had this experience and then it was like, like heaven and and I'm good to go from now on. But he doesn't. He sort of does that for a moment and then puts you right back. In the same family, the same friends, the same dysfunctional job environment, the same stuff that you were struggling with before. It's all still there. The only thing that's changed is you. Well, that's because you're going to be part of the change, but we'll talk about that in just a second. So he does that to them. He, He saves them out of Corinth back into Corinth. And this is still a city that operates in very practical ways um, in a system that's steeped in idolatry. So one of the things they run into is when they go to like Albertsons to buy food, that food has been sacrificed to idols. Right? Problematic. They start to think, wait a minute. If we eat this, are we participating now in this system that we have forsaken, that we've laid down? Is that problematic for us? Or they would go to somebody's house. 
And this person, they're, they're wanting to engage in their city. They're not withdrawing from their city, but they're engaging in their city. And so when somebody invites them to dinner, they go, even, even if that person is not a believer. And then they serve them a meal, like a great, like, prime rib dinner that has been sacrificed to an idol. And they start to think, is this problematic? And there's some in the church who say it is. Wildly problematic. We cannot participate in this anymore, Right? And to do so is wrong, it's sinful, it's just, it's idolatrous. There are others, though, who start to think about this more theologically. They say, wait a minute. When we heard the gospel message, we were set free from the law, from this, these sort of legalistic rules. And, and, and when I think about it, that idol is just a rock. <laughs> it's just a tree. It's just something that has been shaped into something else. And so the food that was set in front of it was literally just a piece of food set in front of a rock. <laughs> I'm free in Christ. And, and what's more, Paul goes on to say, Jesus made the tree. He made the rock. He made the meat. It's all good. So why can't I participate? They're thinking theologically about the problem, which actually something I encourage people to do when you encounter a practical problem in life. Think theologically about it. Reframe it in terms of who is God and what is he like. And then deal with the problem from that lens. But, but they think theologically about it, and they say, you know what? We should be able to eat whatever we want. Everything is right. Everything is allowable. It's permissible. What's interesting is Paul writes this letter, and what, these, these letters are, are great because what they're like is half the phone conversation, right? Have you ever listened to somebody and tried to construct the other half of the phone conversation? That's what we're doing here. Um, and in this, Paul writes back, and he says, you know what? Those of you who are thinking about your freedom in Christ, those of you who are thinking about um, the fact that this idol is nothing, you're right. You are 100% right. There is no reason on God's green earth that you can't eat that steak. You're right. But, everybody thought I knew there was a but. It's too good to be true, right? But, he says, if it's a problem... For someone else's conscience, don't do it. Right? He's, ma- he's, he's making a pretty profound statement. He's saying there are more important things than being right. You're right. But it isn't about that. It's about a higher priority in your life. The higher priority is the good of fellow believers, the good of the church, and the mission of the church which is the gospel witness in the world. Paul says it's more than that. It's more than your life. That's the thing when Jesus saved you. He saved you out of your own self. He, he took you out of the center of the universe and put himself there. Do you realize that's what's happened? Jesus has removed us from the center of our lives and put himself firmly there where he belonged all along. And now he says to us, Yeah, you're right. You have freedom to do anything. But I'm asking you to lay aside that freedom for the sake of those whose conscience won't allow them the same level of freedom. In other letters, he refers to people of weaker conscience. And I want to be really, really clear on this. Living for the glory of God certainly means that we are willing to lay aside our freedoms for the sake of someone else. 
it certainly means that we prioritize the good of, of other believers and of the church above our own. It certainly means that we have a priority on the gospel going out into all the world and that that supersedes, that that, that, that overarches all of our lives. It means all of these things. That being said, though, I think it's important to mention that it's not okay for a weaker conscience to remain weaker conscience forever. Right? There still is, and maybe this is just the justice, the like right and wrong in me saying, there still is right and wrong. And it's not okay for us simply to say, well, because those who have weaker conscience have a weaker conscience, we have to bend forever. The goal is that as we are bending and submitting our freedoms to their own benefit and good, that they are growing up in maturity to Christ-likeness, you see? I mean, imagine if you were hearing this letter. If you were sitting in the room and Paul is saying to this whole group of people, some of whom are on the like eat the meat side and some of whom are on the, on the opposite side. And he's saying, there is a right answer, but I'm asking you to submit your rightness for the sake of those who aren't yet at that level of freedom in Christ that you are. Imagine what that does to the people in the room who aren't yet at the level, not that it's you guys, you just happen to be the hand that I'm using, okay? It's, they're, they're interchangeable. Yeah, we're starting to point fingers. Here we go. Um, Imagine what that does, though, in their hearts and minds, as they're saying, wait, I appreciate what he's saying, but, but if in reality, part of the problem is that my conscience hasn't yet been strengthened by the Spirit of God, that I haven't yet understood what freedom in Christ means, then maybe I need to grow up too, you see? There's kind of a double edge to this. So I, I, I want to be careful here, because oftentimes we'll use this as a, see, those people, they're just wrong. They shouldn't, they should lay down their freedoms for the other people. And I say, yes, yes. But, so that we can all grow up in maturity into Christ-likeness. Does that make sense? So what does living for the glory of God mean? It means that God is first. <laughs> it means that he takes priority, that he takes preeminence in our lives. That our lives, that our affections are radically shifted from me-centered and my world-centered, my kingdom-centered to his. In the notes, I say that this is everything is missional. What I meant by that is everything, um, that God's mission then supersedes our own. So when you're born into this world, you have this sort of mission that you discover, you know, throughout your life. And that's what the world tells you your job is, is to discover your mission, discover your purpose, discover what you were made for. And I'm telling you, If you're a follower of Jesus, that's no longer your purpose. It's not to discover your purpose for your life. It's to discover his purpose for your life. The guy who wrote this letter had a dramatic, life-changing experience on the road to Damascus. Paul was a guy who had his life figured out. Right? He had, uh, if you read the book of Philippians, he tells his story. He says, I, I was this super, like, educated, going somewhere wealthy guy. You know, I won't kind of give you the whole, the whole rundown, but it, essentially what he says is I was born into the right family. I went to the right schools. I had the right friends. I was even born on the right day, right? I did everything correct. But then he goes on to say, whatever was to my gain, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them trash that I may gain Christ. Right, so what what happened? What happened? What what was this shift in him where he went from this going places guy who was all about realizing his dreams for his life to this place where he said, you can take it all, throw it all away. And that's the fundamental question changed for him. You know the moment when all that changed? Paul, Jesus appears to Paul on the road, right? 
blinds him on the road to Damascus, knocks him on the ground, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What was the first thing out of Saul's mouth? Remember? Who are you, Lord? That question was the moment everything changed. What's the question we're taught to ask in this culture today? Who am I? Who am I? I'm telling you, if you want to find life, change the question. From who am I to who are you, Lord? If you find him, you get yourself in the mix. If you don't find him, it doesn't matter what you do. You'll never know what you're made for. So that's changing the priority. You see, Paul is saying, look, it's not about you being right or wrong. It's not about your liberties. It's not about your life. There is a higher call. You are being drawn up into something else. That's what it means to live for the glory of God. It means that you consider God and his glory, his renown, his... Actually, the word is weight. So there's this Hebrew word. The the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, right? And it literally means heavy. Um, It means weighty. It means honorable. So, in other words, what Paul is saying here, and I know the New Testament was written in Greek, but Paul, is a, is his, he's a Jewish guy. He's got this, this very Hebrew mindset. And this word kavod, when we think of glory, we think of the Greek word, which, which has kind of connotations of light and, and shining and brilliance, which is also true. But the, Greek, uh, the, the Hebrew mindset is that there's this weight to somebody. If they are glorious, they have a gravity about them. When they walk into a room, there's honor and respect there. So what Paul is saying here is live your life in such a way that God weighs heavy on you. Now, I don't know about you all, but for Americans, that doesn't always go over so well. <laughs> right? Because we cast off weights. We cast off things that, that suppress us. We cast off things that limit our liberties. And I'm here to tell you, That if that's our mindset, that if we come into this thing with this American sort of freedom and liberty mindset, and that mindset takes precedent over the kingdom of God, and understanding what it means to be ruled by a king, we're never going to understand this Jesus. Yes, we are citizens of an amazing country, where we have lots of rights and liberties, and I'm eternally grateful. I am. But when Jesus saved me, when he saved you, He changed your citizenship. You are now at a deeper level, at a higher level, citizens of a kingdom. And the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as absolute liberty to do whatever you want. In a kingdom, you do whatever your king tells you to do. He should be weighty on us. Jesus didn't set us... When we talk about freedom in Christ, I think we think that Jesus walked into the slave market and he emancipated us. He didn't. He didn't emancipate us. He bought us. Right? He did set us free from slavery to sin. But if you read the book of Romans, Paul says you are no longer slaves to sin, but what? Slaves to righteousness. <laughs> you move from one to the other. And now, now, if this is all starting to sound kind of heavy and you're thinking, wait, what is this Jesus thing all about? What's one slavery for another? I, I'm telling you that enslavement to a good king is actually where life is, right? That freedom to do whatever we want is another form of tyranny. It's, just, it's a self-tyranny, that it's destructive. None of us actually want that. In our hearts, what we want is we want to follow a king who has good things for us. We just don't get it in this context, in this culture. If you ever want to understand it, um, I got to take a trip to Bhutan one time. I didn't intend to talk about this, so I'll make it quick. Bhutan is a monarchy. 
and they love their king. There's pictures of them everywhere. I mean, almost like too much, like almost to a godlike status. But they know in this context what it means. So when you talk about King Jesus in that kind of a context, they get it. Oh, a good king who has our best interests in mind. Oh, I, I get that. I understand. Our, our context for king is what? George III, right? Which was not a great picture for us. <laughs> anyway, you get the point. Being a part of this kingdom now means we have a new priority in our lives. It means he takes precedent. That his weight, his glory is on our hearts and our minds. And that supersedes our own kingdom. So I, I put everything as missional. I actually want to change that first heading to God is everything. <laughs> okay? What is, what is the glo- living for the glory of God means? It means God is everything. It means he is our everything. He is our source. He is the fountainhead from which the rivers of our life flow. So everything is affected by him. Everything is changed by him. And that kind of gets to our, to our next nuance of this. What does it mean to live for the glory of God? Well, then let's make point number two, that everything is missional. I, I think in the notes it says everything is redeemable. Are you confused yet? We're just swap, swapping stuff around. What I... Oh, fantastic. You guys don't even know what I'm talking about then. Ignore all of this. I planned this. I've had this thing written for months. Not a word has changed. God spoke clearly. I mean, I literally just typed as he was speaking into my ear and it's been... Anyway, okay. Whoo. You you still sure about this? We still okay? All right, good. We're still good. All right. Everything is missional then. Um, What do I mean by that? I mean, okay. If, if God is the fountainhead of all of our life, if he is kind of the stream for which all of this flows, and, and our, our primary concern now is that God be weighing heavy on our hearts and our minds at all times, um, then that's going to affect um, everything. Right? Uh, Eric talked last week about how um, in the Platonic system, um, there were some activities that were better than others. Right? There, there, there are things that you can do, conversations that you can have, places that you can go that are in more spiritual than others. And those are the, you want to spend more time in those places than you want to spend in the other places, right? So uh, a, a temple is a spiritual place. A, a, an academic setting is a place of intellect and, and learning. Those are spiritual endeavors, whereas um, maybe, you know, working with your hands is not. It's a necessary evil. It's something that someday will outgrow. Or maybe, um, you know, playing with children is not. It's, it's something that we have to do for the time being. We have to raise our kids. But, but, but what I would really like to do is spend all... Let's, let's, let's translate this to our day and age. What I'd really like to do is spend all my days at church. Because that's where the spiritual stuff is happening. And what Paul says here is he says something fascinating. He says, whether you're eating or drinking or doing anything, do it all to the glory of God. Everything is an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed. Everything in our lives. There is no division between sort of this platonic system of of spirituality and and physicality. There is no division. God made it all. Did you know that? The book of Genesis chapter 1, God created it all. Spiritual worlds and physical worlds, as a matter of fact, uh, the, the Old Testament doesn't really divide those things. It's all one system. It's all one world. You know how the Old Testament talks about all of the created order? It calls it the heavens, the earth, and under the earth. And it's all one thing. Jesus was not a Platonist. He was not a, a guy heavily influenced by Greek thought. He was influenced by the book of Genesis. If you were to ask Jesus, hey, how's your spiritual life these days? 
You know what he would say? He'd look at you and say, what? You mean like, like how's my life? Right? <laughs> what are you asking me? For, for, for a Hebrew, for somebody who's steeped in the Old Testament, it's all one thing. Because you see, when God made it all, in Genesis chapter 1, what did he say? I mean, he makes all of this physical stuff. He makes dirt. And he makes trees. And he makes light. And he makes animals. And he makes people. And he says, it's what? It's good. I want to tell you something. God has not changed his mind about that. God has not suddenly decided that all of this, oh, wait a minute, it was good, and then they screwed it up, and so we're just going to wipe the whole thing out, and, and, and just the, the, the whole physical experiment went wrong. So we're going to cast it all aside and go for the spiritual thing. You see, because that's, that's a philosophy that has worked its way into our churches, isn't it? It's worked its way into the way we think about salvation, that salvation is a spiritual reality only a spiritual reality. So I have this kind of spiritual experience. I confess my sins and I am personally saved. And what does salvation mean? Well, it means that I sort of endure this life until I get to cast off this body and float in the clouds for the rest of eternity, right? This disembodied future. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that's not what Jesus says. It's not what the New Testament talks about. It's not actually the hope that the Bible offers. Do you know the word that Jesus uses when he refers to what's to come? Resurrection. Resurrection. Not some disembodied future, but an actual restoration of what was lost to sin. You see, sin didn't destroy the goodness of God and the world did it. It just covered over it. It just damaged it. Ladies and gentlemen, you are still made in the image of God. That's not lost because sin is a part of your life. It's just obscured. It's just damaged. And now, what Jesus has come to do is said, I want to draw it out again. I want to redeem it, which means I want to make it good again. He's come to redeem this physical world. Not to do away with it. Not to draw us out of it, but to restore it. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Never die. Look, the language, even the ministry of Jesus. What did Jesus spend most of his time doing? Healing people. Why? Why would he do that? If the goal was to move from this kind of disembodied, or this physical reality to some disembodied future, why would he so dignify the human body? Just to show he could? No. Just so that he could have a conversation with them about then spiritual stuff, you know, sort of use it as an, as an on-ramp into a spiritual conversation? No. Sometimes he didn't even do that. Sometimes he just healed them and then walked away. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to show what his kingdom was going to look like. In my kingdom, there is no more leprosy. In my kingdom, there is no more blindness. In my kingdom, there is no more death. Let me show you. Let me give you a little taste of it that will whet your appetite for more. The kingdom of God, he says, is at hand. That doesn't mean it's about to happen. That means it's right here. Reach out and touch it. 
Now you see what happens when we start to think of this kind of division where we have spiritual stuff and physical stuff. What happens to the way we think about the mission of God? Well, we neuter it. We rob it of its power because we think that there are only certain spaces in which mission happens. That there are only certain places in which redemption is happening. There are only certain ways in which the glory of God can be displayed. And the reality is when we do that, we segregate the mission of God off to a section of our lives that most of us, myself included, rarely play in. And we feel guilty because we haven't evangelized recently. Right? Now, I want to be very clear on this, okay? Because I know this gets into some... This will probably raise questions in people's minds. I'm not saying that evangelism isn't important. Okay, I mean, you guys have to notice what I do for a living. (laughs) I believe very strongly in the verbal proclamation of the word of God and telling people about Jesus. I believe that that is the best and most loving kind of stuff that we can say with our words. I just don't think that that's the entirety of the mission of God. Right? Do you remember the first commission we were given? Eric talked about it last week. Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. He makes us in his image and then he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I want to suggest today that God has not given up on that mission. That it's still the same. That the great commission is actually Jesus reiterating that in other words. When he says, fill the earth, notice the order. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we have these people made in the image of God and then he says to them, now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With what? The image of God. In other words, fill creation with me. With people who reflect me. Reflect my character. It's all of creation. I want you to rule this place in a way that is consistent with who I am. I want you to be the image that you were made to be. And I want to suggest that that is still our purpose. And that what Jesus has come to do is not simply save us from our sins so that we can endure this world and float off into the clouds someday, but save us from our sins so that we can be a part of the restoration of that purpose here and now. Now, it's not going to be complete until he comes back, right? We can't do it on our own. But that doesn't mean that what we're doing here is fruitless. That doesn't mean that it's wasted. It doesn't mean that we just sort of have to hunker down until we die. No, it's time, people who have been saved by Jesus, to become once again the image of God that we were made to be, to reflect Him in everything we do, whether we eat or drink or anything else. Do it all to the glory of God, which is to say do it all in a way that is participating with God in the restoration of all things. Now, where can you do that? Anywhere. Anywhere. Plato tells us that there are some spaces that are better than others, and I'm here to tell you there are not. This is a beautiful space. But God isn't just here, my friends. You know, as a matter of fact, do you know why God is as present in this place as he is? Because you showed up. That's what Jesus says, right? He says of the temple, tear it down. Tear it down. He's just being consistent with what God has been saying throughout the whole Bible. That God doesn't live in a house. He lives in a people. He lives in a people. So where is the kingdom of God most present? The four square feet around you at any given moment. So be 
kingdom, citizen. Be the image of God you were made to be. You are being restored by Jesus in front of the watching world. Now have that play itself out in every facet of your life. Eric talked last week about how that, that influences the way we think about our work. Right? How can you be part of the restoration? How can you live for the glory of God in your job? Do it well. Do it with a good attitude. Do it justly. I'm not saying do every job well. There's some jobs that just need to go away because they're unjust or unethical. But if your job is just and ethical, then do it well. And that in and of itself is part of the restoration of all things. A kingdom citizen living out the mission of God with integrity and purpose and excellence. That is what he made you to do. Your schoolwork. If you're in school, you don't just want to get good grades to get good grades, to please your parents or to get a scholarship. No, it's because that's where God has put you. And being the image of God in that place means applying yourself to your studies with excellence. If you're a parent, it's not just about raising your kids so that they can be happy someday. Look, it's about parenting them well so that as God weighs heavily on you, as his glory weighs heavily on you, you pass that weight onto them. And I mean that in the best way. You pass on that, that, this is a terrible analogy, but you guys seen those weighted comforters? That sense of just this, like this weight that, that settles on your shoulders and is good and is right. You pass it on to them. And you're doing your tax returns. Jesus, you can have anything but not my bank account, right? (laughs) What does it mean to live for the glory of God in this way? It means that we're ethical. It means that that we're honest. It means that he weighs on our minds as we're processing this stuff. And that, my friends, doing a tax return to the glory of God is possible. Do you believe that the glory of God is possible in any situation? That's it. The problem is, speaking for myself, we just don't live it. Why? (laughs) Why? Well, because honestly, in many ways, I'm still at the center of my universe. I think that's what the Bible, when Jesus talks about ye of little faith, I think that's what he's talking about. He's saying you haven't yet moved yourself to the periphery and moved God to the center. Faith is not an intellectual thing. It's, a, it's an orientation. It's, it's ground that we stand on. question is, have we moved God to the center, prioritized his kingdom, and then seen that play itself out in every area of our lives? I mean, we could go on and on. We could name every possible vocation in this room. We could talk about how to, how to glorify God, to live for the glory of God in your retirement. We could talk about how to live for the glory of God. I mean, they're across the street now, but, but at five years old. I mean, this, this can be done. The glory of God is possible. It's available in every moment. The question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we live into it? And that gets us to our last thing, and I want to hit this quick. Our last thing here. What does it mean to live to the glory of God? It means living in the presence of God. So everything is spiritual is the, head, is the heading that I gave it in the notes that you don't have, which I'm thankful for because they're not accurate anymore. But what I mean by that is God is everywhere, at all times, working in all things. And our job, my friends, if we want to do this, is just to notice where he's at work. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that half the battle is just being aware of the presence of God. That if we could just do that, 
on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, that everything would be different. And I think, I think we can. We just have to train ourselves toward it. I, you, you have a group that's going to Israel. I'm excited for you. I want to I submit to you that the glory of God is available on this trip as well. Not just as you're walking where Jesus walked, but as you're walking through a modern context fraught with all sorts of political and religious and, and every other sort of, of, of situation, that the glory of God is available, so have eyes to see. Um, but in my time in Israel, I've been a few times. Uh, when I'm in, in Jewish parts of town, I notice people walking around with the little men walking around with a little thing on their head. We call it yarmulke. They call it kippah in Hebrew. Um, it's, uh, what, has anybody ever seen, seen those? You know what it's all about? It's just a reminder. It serves as a, rem- a reminder that in their worldview, the divine, divine presence is above them. So you wear this little pancake on your head to remind you that God is with you. And to cover the bald spot. That's secondary, secondary. There's all sorts of things like that in Judaism. I mean, what do you think Sabbath is all about? It's so that one day in every seven, we stop from our producing to recognize God, that God is at work and that all of our work flows out of his. We're actually going to talk about that next week, so stay tuned. Um, Jews have these practices to remind them that God is with them. Christians throughout the centuries have had these practices to remind them that God is with them. They build their lives around a calendar, a church calendar, a liturgical calendar. We're in the middle of one right now called Lent. This is a season that for too much of the history of the church was relegated to the Catholic church and the Protestants ignored it entirely. And now we're starting to wake up and say, wait a minute, maybe it makes sense for to have a 40-day chunk in the middle of my spring to remind me that God is with me. I think we need to reclaim some of these practices, my friends. Not as righteousness, right? Fasting, keeping the Sabbath, practicing liturgical rhythms like Lent and, and Easter and Pentecost. These are not righteousness. They don't make us righteous. Jesus does that. But they're wisdom. They're ways of reminding ourselves who we are and what we're doing. Because make no mistake about it. You are living in Alexander's world. But you're a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is calling us to live differently. He's not calling us to get out of this place, to move to a higher level of existence. He's calling us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, to be a part of the restoration of all things, to live to the glory of God in every moment of our lives. And my friends, I think, I know we can do it. We can do it by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, and through the fellowship of the church. We can do it. So let's do it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I am so grateful that you have come to save us. I pray today that we would all have a full picture of what that means. Of what exactly, not just of what you've saved us from, although that's so important to recognize that you have saved us from sin and death and every other thing that would enslave us. It's important to remember that, but, but help us to also remember what you've saved us to. You have saved us into your kingdom. You have saved us into your mission of the restoration of all things. You have saved us to your glory. So now, 
by the power of your spirit, would you awaken in us a desire to do so? A vision for what that could be. God, I pray that for, I just feel like I need to pray that right now. I feel, God, like I want to ask for vision for everybody in this room. Holy Spirit, maybe I could ask everybody just to kind of reflect on your story, your circumstances, your life. Holy Spirit, would you give every follower of Jesus here a vision for their lives with you, their lives for you? Would you give them an imagination to see their tomorrow morning in a new way, to see their ordinary and their mundane as a platform for your glory? every moment, every circumstance. God, I pray that you give us all fresh eyes to see you at work. This is a holy space and we're grateful for it. But so are our homes and our schools and our jobs. They're holy because you're with us and we're there. So God, help us to see you at work. Give us the courage to join you. grateful. I'm grateful that you love us. I'm grateful that you allow us to be a part of this. I'm excited about the possibility of this church in this city fully alive, fully awakened to what you're doing. So, Father, let it be. Pray this in your name. Amen.